0: To the Freedom Pact. Okay, joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today for his fourth appearance is Brett Weinstein. Brett, welcome back to the show. Lewis, it's so good to see you. Man, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back. We did this in 2020, uh, 2021, 2022, now 2023. Um, I I feel like, you know, you're now uh, our most regular guest, so uh another record set.
1: I am uh I am proud and honored to have that role.
0: All right, well, my first question, um, last time we spoke, uh, you were quite open and honest about um, what censorship had sort of done to you. You mentioned that it wiped out um, close to half of your income at the time. Um, so my first question is simply, how are you?
1: Well, that's a, that is a tough one because uh, I'm very worried about us collectively. And so it's impossible to be great if you're deeply worried about us, the authoritarian thumb on the scale is still very much there. I feel it every day, the intensity or, um, the directness with which it interferes is not as bad as it was the last time we spoke, but nonetheless, the force is still there. It needs to be opposed. It is unclear exactly what its nature is, but I think many people have detected that there is something, uh, setting boundaries to what it is we are allowed to discuss and even allowed to think. And so anyway, personally, I would say I'm doing very, very well. Um, but in terms of our trajectory and what I think is coming, I'm, I'm concerned.
0: I'm very glad to hear that you personally are doing well and your story's been one that's, that's been really interesting to me you know from the first moment i heard it and all the conversations we've had and i was reflecting today on um well i recently spoke to peter bogosian and and he was sort of talking about this idea that everyone in this sort of idw space had their own breaking point originally um, i guess for you that would be uh, your experiences at evergreen I was reflecting on that this morning, and I wanted to ask you at the time, even though you knew you were doing something that was right, what doubts, what worries went through your mind? Because when you make a decision like that, it obviously comes with its risks. Was it a case of just reminding yourself that you were doing you know, ultimately the right thing, or were you sort of clouded in worry and, and doubt as well?
1: Well, I think I am unusually well constructed for such a situation so there's a way in which i look back on what happened and there are little things i would do differently i suppose but in general my feeling is i didn't have any choice Hmm. the uh the right and wrong aspect of it was crystal clear the uh what needed to be said was crystal clear my biggest concern at the time was that there was the narrative as it unfolded as people saw it but there was also a a meta game being played right the idea at the evergreen campus was if we can keep this story local then we have sufficient control to win that's what the opponents of reason were thinking or were effectively thinking And so from my perspective, it had to be viewed by a wider audience that could see how crazy the whole thing was. That was the thing that made it impossible for them to retain control of it. Now, on the one hand, the mainstream press played along, not understanding what it was doing, presumably, but played along with the desire to keep the story local. They absolutely wouldn't touch it. Tucker Carlson was interested in the story. Um, at first, I thought that was completely cynical. Um, that, you know, he was a conservative and the story made liberals look bad. From my perspective, the story needed to reach a wider audience, and so I was willing to go on his program. I also went on Go Rogan's program. He's obviously a liberal. He was not trying to exploit liberal craziness. Um, but nonetheless, I later came to understand that Carlson was up to something much more interesting than just embarrassing liberals, right? I, I don't even think that's what he was doing but nonetheless the point is I was concerned that the story would not leap the gap and get viewed by people who would be properly shocked by it the protesters themselves the protesters who inside of hours, became rioters they actually made it possible to get a wider audience interested because they proudly filmed everything they did and uploaded it I think to Facebook and then another person moved it to YouTube where it was widely viewed. And that error allowed me to tell the story and not have people imagine that I was just simply making it up, right? Because it was all there on, on, on video. And I would say it was also quite possible for people to get the story wrong, even if they were fascinated by it. And the work of Benjamin Boyce and Mike Nana has made that impossible because benjamin boyce has done an an absolutely thorough job um, prying the evidence loose finding every scrap of video compiling it getting documents um, and doing an extensive video series and mike nana has done a much shorter more to the point video series that really captures what it felt like at the time and what it meant so anyway i'm grateful in retrospect that the thing did not result in it being impossible for me to teach there but uh not being able to jump the gap to do anything else
0: Hmm. and i mean obviously since then you've you've gone on to have you know success in in a whole new way but back then you know where it was impossible to predict where your career was going to end up were you worried at all about, you know, what you might do next or what the next venture was, because obviously you, you, you weren't guaranteed success in this podcast space with the book, with everything else that's come with it since.
1: Sure. I mean, I, I think I would have been foolish not to be worried, but again, the silver lining of the whole thing was that it was so clear. It didn't really matter whether or not there was a path to the next thing there was no way literally for me there is no way i could have remained silent given what was taking place on a campus that i loved what was jeopardizing students that i cared deeply about right there was no way i was going to be able to live with myself if i didn't say what needed to be said and because i had been studying related questions for decades I also knew what it was that did need to be said, right? So it wasn't like I I had to sort my way through some incredibly confusing uh, philosophical landscape in order to come up with uh, responses. It was like, no, here's why what you're saying is wrong. Here's what will happen if you keep going down this road. So the silver lining was it was actually straightforward from my perspective, even as hard as that is to believe looking at it from the outside.
0: I was um, having a little look on your Twitter this morning um, while I was out for my walk and you made a reference to one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, Jack had said on Twitter that uh, end of an empire and you said the empire strikes out. What do you think, what, what is sort of Jack alluding to you and, and what do you make of it all? What was he trying to imply? Well, I have no idea.
1: And in fact, maybe you didn't see, I replied to his tweet where he said, before I said the empire strikes out, I uh, I replied to his tweet where he said the end of an empire. And I said, could you be more specific? And of course mm. got nothing back. Um, so I don't know what it is he's referring to. There are a lot of things he could be referring to. And yeah. he's done a very good job of tapping into a thread that many of us have arrived at, you know, mm. you, Um, you alluded earlier to the, the entry point of all of the members of, of IDW. And I think there is, you know, not every member of IDW would agree with this, but there is something we have a system society that is incredibly productive and vibrant. And it is also the fairest society, the fairest civilization that has ever existed. Is it fair? no we never got there but we did make a hell of a lot of progress in motion towards that goal and we are now upending it for at least two different reasons one is there's a faction that has become so obsessed with the degree to which it is not fair and has inferred that it is structurally unfair that it is not interested in being fair and so they are sabotaging it and then there's another faction that I think I would call them rent-seeking elites the rent-seeking elites are understandably concerned that their position their elite position is not secure if the people have power to govern Mm -hmm. and so there's a a cryptic attempt to leave the trappings of democracy in place, but to eliminate democratic power because democratic power threatens elites, especially those who are rent seekers rather than productive. And we can go back into a discussion of do such people exist, or is that you know cartoonifying uh, people who are, are more complex? But nonetheless, if you are in an elite position for illegitimate reasons, then of course you fear the democratic capacity of people to self-govern and so anyway you get this confluence of of these rent-seeking elites and confused young people who see the ill that the west has done and imagine that that is the story unable to detect all of the good the west has done and the trajectory that the west was on at the point that uh they arrived so Could be that Jack is referring to the, the collapse of Western civilization. It could be that he is suddenly awake to the resistance movement, right? This movement that is attempting to protect the West to shore it up and that he is signaling that he's on board, but frankly, you know, 280 characters isn't a lot, but he could have been a lot more specific in that space, right? It's a little bit of an art, but you would think the guy who started Twitter would uh, have nailed it by now.
0: You'd think so. Well, on the, on the subject of, of, of Twitter while we're here, if you were to give a sort of grade uh, to Elon Musk's handling of, of uh, Twitter so far, what would your honest opinion and assessment be? That is a tough question he has certainly
1: done some things that just leave me scratching my head. (laughs) Uh, Right. And then, but I look, here's the problem. The man is is nothing if not enigmatic, Mm. right? I'm pretty good at figuring out what motivates people. I think Elon Musk has a world saving impulse. I think that's why he's focused on Mars. I think that's why he's focused on Neuralink. I think, I think he's a guy who, frankly, he's been public about the fact that his upbringing was no picnic. Maybe he's fleeing some demons, maybe being very, very busy with really interesting stuff is how he avoids them. Um, but I do think if you listen to some of the things that he said you know on Rogan's program for example I think he genuinely likes humanity he appreciates it which many people do not but he seems to and he wants because he's in the privileged position he is in of having influence and having a tremendous amount of wealth that he can spend to to alter the chessboard I think he's trying to <clears throat> he's trying to save the place and in that capacity Twitter does play a special role um, I have coined the phrase zero is a special number to signify a particular uh, game theoretic a subtle game theoretic reality that I think people need to be aware of which is if you had a single university that said forget this equity stuff. We are going to seek truth wherever that leads us. Everybody would want to send their kid there, right? That's obviously going to be the best university there is. There's no question about it. A truth-seeking university is way better for making uh, your your kid smarter than an equity-focused university. So why then, given that any university could do this and be the top university, do none of them do it? because there's a force that has to synchronize them all on the wrong message in order for that wrong message to be viable. So how that force works, different question, but that it needs to be zero universities escape is a fact. Same thing goes for newspapers. If there was one newspaper that also said, no, we're not interested in this, uh, intersectional blah, blah, blah what we're interested in is figuring out what's actually taking place and what it means. That'd be the newspaper we'd all subscribe to. We'd love that newspaper, right? It'd be a slam dunk business wise. There's no argument that this could fail, but there isn't one. How could that be? Right? So this is true across domain after domain. And it's certainly true in uh, social media space. If there was a social media platform, a big one where everybody could gather and you could say whatever you thought needed saying, That'd be the obvious place to go you know who wants to live in some artificially uh pruned environment where you you know somebody is so interested in protecting you from the damage of hearing something wrong that they're going to prevent it from even being said nobody wants to be treated like a child, right We want to go to a we don't yes, we don't want to hear people shouting profanity. Denying the Holocaust, whatever it might be. But frankly, if I've got to choose between hearing the occasional bit of profanity and the occasional Holocaust denier, and I get to hear actual people discussing important things that matter to me and my family and our well being, I'll take the place where I hear the occasional thing that's awful, right? As would most people. So why doesn't that thing exist? Well, now we know that I was right about the zero as a special number thing because Elon Musk buys Twitter he nominally attempts to make it into that place and what happens oh suddenly we're seeing uh journalists reporting on how actually um electric cars uh are bringing out the worst in us right Mm -hmm. elon musk is now a right-wing uh figure right engaged in some kind of misogynistic patriarchal whatever whatever Right, there's there's just an engine that's going to portray him as something that he isn't, in order to prevent his Twitter play from working. Oh, this doesn't work. Twitter's actually doing better than it was. So what happens next? Okay, the blue team starts fleeing Twitter for Mastodon because if you can't stop them from making Twitter into a free space, you can turn it into a space that you can then uh, dismiss as right wing because the left wingers have fled. Right. So anyway, my point is there are going to be a dozen of these plays to make Twitter not be a actually free public square uh, of where everybody gathers and discusses the the important uh, stories of the day Mm. in such an environment. Musk is a very unusual entity. He seems to care less what people say about him than most of us. And that is some kind of superpower. Right? It allows him to, to steer into the storm and to laugh it off and to innovate, frankly, some responses that at first might seem juvenile, but are actually very clever. You know, when CNBC tries to get you to comment in some way that they are then going to turn into evidence of your uh, right-wing lunacy and you send back a poop emoji, Right. <laughs> There's no, there's nothing in the journalistic playbook about what you do. You know, you can't say he didn't comment, right? He did comment. (laughs) So anyway, my, my point would be, I think a couple things are true. Musk makes big errors. It is also true that Musk often corrects his big errors, right? He seems to be of the mindset that one accomplishes great things by, uh, Failing often uh, there's a phrase I've, I've forgotten what it is, but something, you, you know, you fail early, often you correct your errors. You basically evolve towards something functional. So I'm hesitant to judge what I consider to be massive errors in the Twitter environment, because I can't see the chessboard the way he can. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it does seem like, for example, if you're committed to free expression, to free speech. And you bought twitter because you want it to be a free speech platform then one thing you shouldn't be doing is degrading the access that other free speech platforms have through twitter so i'm very troubled by what he's done with substack right Hmm. and what that that he has not been clear about why he's done it right i can see that there's a business conflict between these two entities but it is also the case that if musk is trying to save the world and free speech is an important component then partners in providing uh a new public square in which free speech is the the central value ought to be uh protected not threatened so I don't know why he did that and I I would counsel him not to I would counsel him to undo it likewise the new uh CEO yeah pretty hard to get past her world economic forum uh, bona fides and it's pretty pretty hard to get past some of her background with respect to ideology now the ceo of a privately held company is a different entity than the ceo of a publicly held company but nonetheless It did feel like a finger in the eye to many of us who have been fighting against tyranny and trying to defend musk in his acquisition of twitter so anyway i I, the answer to your question is i would give elon more room to navigate in ways that i don't understand than just about anybody because he's proven that he's very very good at this right so I am ready to hear that there's some explanation for Yakarino that doesn't, you know, immediately occur to me, but it's hard for me to imagine what it would sound like, right? And frankly, my guess is they run afoul of each other. Maybe that has already happened. Now, she hasn't officially started, but maybe she had something to do with what happened with uh, what is a woman um and the weirdness where they reversed course on that is somehow downstream of this and maybe we get a couple more of those and then yeah carino is removed i would i wouldn't be shocked
0: the one i've really struggled with <clears throat> with twer is the whole uh the whole blue tick um situation in which really struck me the other day when i received i received a, a call from a from a company um I was trying to buy a product and they were asking me for details and I thought hold on I thought this num it sounds a bit like a scam here so I hung up I took the number I went onto their Twitter uh, to try and you know find what, the number that they advertise in terms of their help department and then because there was no tick there I thought oh, I don't know if I can kind of trust this as much as I normally would and so I'd love to ask you because you're a you're a public figure you've got I think it's 700,000 followers on Twitter doesn't really mean much to me because if someone want to impersonate me, they could, you know, conjure up a couple of hundred followers and, you know, people wouldn't know the difference. But for someone like you, if someone took the time, and I believe they can, to try and replicate your profile in terms of, um, you know, number of followers, they could buy followers, for example, go through and make their Twitter, you know, copy your tweets for X amount of months and then pay for a blue tick. Is that something that worries you at all?
1: Yeah, quite a bit. Um and in fact i believe we have entities like this mm. uh ed krasnstein and his brother okay um these guys i don't know what the story is i haven't followed them carefully i haven't followed them at all frankly but i did notice they suddenly showed up in my timeline just non-stop and i was mm. like who, who are these people and then i looked at their accounts and oh they're huge numbers of followers how don't i know who this person is and then there's some sordid story where they bought accounts that were already popular that had nothing to do with them. And I don't know what it is, but it all feels very inorganic. And of course the blue check mark can be thrown onto any account now just uh, by buying it. So in my opinion, what we really should be doing is there should be a blue check mark or some check mark. That blue check mark should be only a hallmark that your identity has been established by Twitter that they know who you are and that you are not going to be able to make multiple accounts to the extent that you do something awful your reputation should follow you right and so it shouldn't ca- it shouldn't carry any connotation you know i mean the the irony here is you can look at heather and my account Okay. I do have, I think it's 900,000 something followers. Um, Heather has, I don't know, is it 300,000 something like that. Now, part of that may be downstream of the fact that I got in just under the wire, right? Right after Evergreen happened, my account, I literally had 400 followers when Evergreen happened, right? I had abandoned Twitter. I'd walked away. It felt like talking into a void, Right. Mm -hmm. So I had 400 followers, Evergreen happened, and suddenly, I think it was like a week, I was at 30,000, right? And so it was like, oh, boy, this is now something, A, you got to be careful with. You can get yourself in trouble if you got a lot of followers. But anyway, I applied for (coughs) verification, and Twitter at the time was still, you know, there was some vestige of its initial purpose for blue checks, which was, to establish that you are who you say you are, if you are an account that is uh, something somebody might um, impersonate, right? Um, so anyway, if they, if you were notable and you could establish who you were, they would give you a blue check mark. Or that's what they said, and in my case, that's what they did. Even though they later put their thumb on the scales and interrupted my ability to reach people. At the time that I got my blue check, they hadn't yet decided I was an enemy. Heather applied shortly thereafter and was told um, that they had suspended the program. They weren't verifying anybody because it had become a hallmark of, uh, it had become a sanction. It had become uh, a mark of Twitter having declared you legitimate and important, right? It was a badge of honor somehow. And so Twitter said it didn't like this. But then in the years that it was suspended, that you couldn't get a blue check mark, no matter who the hell you were, right? They gave them out. And they gave them out to all kinds of people. They gave them out. There was one friend of mine unearthed one case in which they had given one to a CCP shill with, I think, under a thousand followers. You know, absolutely not noteworthy. Absolutely not what it said it was. It was the opposite of what Twitter... Claimed that this should be and so anyway their behavior in that period where they did not have a official program for getting uh validated or verified what they did is they turned it into exactly what they claimed they didn't want it to be it was a twitter sanction they refused to give it to notable people who uh they didn't like and they gave it to people who weren't notable that they did like and so it was this you know schoolyard bullshit thing but um it could be that you could take the, um, the sanction aspect out of it and you could use it purely as an indication that something is really what it says. It is that it doesn't have multiple presences that are all, uh, verified. In other words, you should be playing with your real reputation. In my opinion, we should all be, we should avoid, uh, anonymity. If i were running it i would probably not have anonymity which makes some of my friends very upset because they're using anonymity to good ends but i think the net impact of anonymity is very negative but nonetheless um you could have a blue check mark that worked the way it's set up now you absolutely don't Mm -hmm. um it's maybe a step in the right direction but i don't think so i think you really need a program i think what he did what Elon did was he built something that you could do cheaply. And I think the problem is if you're trying to solve the problem that a blue check mark could potentially solve, there isn't a cheap solution. You're going to need to do something that actually individually establishes the identity. And then when that happens, do you have a blue check? Did I do you? not. I do not. You do not. Um, one thing that was true back in the days when blue checks were not something you could buy officially, um, that they opened a tab inside your, your Twitter app that allowed you to only look at activity of other verified accounts, Yeah, which was obviously highly arbitrary. Heather wasn't verified. So her activity wouldn't show up, for example. And it certainly should. She's a person whose opinion ought to matter to just about anybody. Um, but it did mean that the bots right the huge armies of things that try to steer conversation could be filtered out with one click right so a system that did that that said look if you want some vast unregulated sandbox of people who have figured out how to produce a thousand accounts that all say the same thing you can do that but I don't want to be part of that Twitter I'm going to go into the part of Twitter that doesn't have that and the blue check could do that um, but I do think a real verification system would have to be underneath it.
0: Well, switching gears then, this is something you did say on Twitter that caught my attention. Um, but we're switching gears now to, to the the election. You said Joe Biden has to go. It's an urgent matter of national security. If the Democratic Party can't see that, then it too has to go. Saying that it's an urgent matter of national security, a lot of people will be, Sort of alarm they'll think that's a really big statement to make how would you back that up
1: i would say it is actually obvious that this is true okay and anybody who doesn't see that has not properly understood the role of the president and the ferocious power at their disposal joe biden Look, I have never been a Joe Biden fan, okay? Joe Biden is a deeply corrupt influence peddler who is selling the American public out to wealthy people who have interests that are contrary to the citizenry. That has been true since before he was president. That is reason enough in my mind to remove him from from office, but that is not what I'm talking about. Okay. Let me just say this. I also detest Kamala Harris for the same reason, right? She's newer at this game, but she's clearly an aspiring influence peddler who will say anything to get ahead. Mm. The implication of my tweet is that Kamala Harris should be president. You've just heard me say that I detest this person. I do not trust her, right? However, Kamala Harris is not senile, right? That means if something happens and a phone call has to be said to to be made and somebody has to say madam president we have four minutes to make a call we have to decide whether or not to launch nuclear weapons here's what happens if whatever the thing is is what we think it is and we don't launch here's what happens if we do launch what do we do right i don't want Kamala harris making that decision i don't trust her however I do believe she could understand what she was being told. Yeah. Right. She is a human being in possession of her mental faculties. Joe Biden has from before his election been clearly losing his mental faculties. You can't have a person who is not in possession of his mental faculties in that role. It is too dangerous for planet earth. It is an offense to all the citizens of earth. Right? Most of most citizens of Earth don't get a vote in American elections. This is an offense to every single one of them that you would play games with their safety by having somebody who is not fully mentally competent in that office and getting less so with each passing month. Yeah. Right. So, my feeling is, you know, I mean, I would say the same thing. I don't want Trump in that office either. But if the phone call comes. Do I rather that the phone call goes to Joe Biden in his state, or do I rather it goes to Donald Trump in his state? I'd much rather have Donald Trump get that phone call, right? Why? Because he's mentally present. So this is a matter of national security. This There's nothing political in what I said, right? What I said is you can't have a country with this kind of power, with a mentally incompetent chief executive that is not a safe thing to do I would also point out Joe Biden is clearly not doing the job of president he is being scripted to keep him in a relatively flattering light to reduce the number of opportunities he has to make gaffes to get him to say stuff that is roughly in keeping with the themes that the DNC wants people to hear But he's not a functional president i don't think it's plausible that he's really evaluating what he needs to evaluate and coming to conclusions based on uh, input from a wide range of advisors i don't think he's doing that job which to my mind is terrifying i live in a democratic republic we vote for presidents they are not superheroes they make decisions based on advisors those advisors have perverse incentives we all get this but we are allowed to elect somebody to do the best they can in that situation if Joe Biden is not functionally president something has happened what is president can we call it before Congress and question it right? Something has happened that has breached our constitution. It's not the first time this has been happening with increasing regularity. And I would say has been particularly um, aggressive since 9-11, but it is frightening that a country as powerful as the United States is now governed by a mechanism that nobody can describe, right? Joe Biden is standing in for something And nobody knows what the something is so that's two grounds on which this is an urgent matter of national security he must be removed from office even though that puts kamala harris in the office kamala harris is at least a person who can be called in front of congress and questioned about why she made a decision
0: yeah i see that i think i remember when we had this conversation back in in 2020 i remember being quite stumped at, you know, the fact that you had two people uh, running for president who, you know, both were in the in their 70s, deep in their 70s. And, and I think that here in the UK, you know, we certainly don't have the best recent history of great prime ministers. But one thing we've always done, or in my adult life, we've always had quite, not naive young, but we've always had quite young, quite fresh prime ministers. I mean, you look now, Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Liz Truss. They might not be the best prime minister, but you knew that their mental faculty, they had control of their mental faculties and that's the least you can ask for, I guess.
1: It's an absolute requirement. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and let's put it this way. Everybody who is participating in the fiction of Joe Biden's competence is guilty of a betrayal of the citizens of the United States and really all of humanity. This is too powerful a country to play games with what is in control For example of our nuclear arsenal, right? And it's not as if this would all be true. If the international stage were comparatively quiescent at the moment, but it isn't we're playing games with Russia right nuclear games you you can't have this person in that office at any moment let alone this moment so so, and you know not only do we have this incompetent person in this office at this moment but his corruption is connected to ukraine this couldn't possibly be a worse organization of entities for the well-being of Americans or Earthlings or Russians or anything, right? This is a complete disaster. And I don't know why it's so hard for people to see it. I think it's a boiling frog issue, right? This happened incrementally. And so people, if they had been teleported into this moment, they'd be absolutely beside themselves. But because they got here slowly, they they don't see it. And, you know, actually, uh, forgive me for this, but I'm going to take a little detour. Yeah, please. Uh, two weeks ago on Dark Horse, Heather and I, as a result of the fact that I had raised the issue of the Nuremberg Code in a public health discussion in Florida, I'm on the uh, the Public Health Integrity Committee that Governor DeSantis put together, and um, I mentioned Nuremberg, And I realized, as I mentioned it, and based on the reaction that I got, that it was not widely understood by people that pandemic policy had directly violated the Nuremberg Code, and they had not understood what the Nuremberg Code really was. This was long enough ago in history that people didn't realize that we had literally hung doctors for violating the right to informed consent, even though it had not been formalized yet. The Nuremberg Code formalizes it. We hung doctors because they should have known people had the right to informed consent. Now, what we did on Dark Horse a couple weeks ago was we actually broke out the Nuremberg Code and read it, right? Now, my claim before having read it, and I had not gone back and read it before then, was we violated the Nuremberg Code twice over. Right, We violated the right to be informed because the debate had been crippled by censorship. So you couldn't possibly be informed even if you did consent. And then we mandated these shots for people. So people weren't giving free consent and they were certainly not informed. That's two violations. But I went through all of the provisions of the Nuremberg Code. We violated all of them right? There might be one exception, right? Where we can't, we don't have the information to know whether we violated it, but we violated the Nuremberg code one end to the other. Now, the reason I raise it is because even though I've known that we violated the Nuremberg code and I've been saying that for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, I was surprised when I got to the actual code at the degree to which we were violating Upon discovering the degree to which we were violating it, I am now scratching my head that this has not been a central feature of our conversation. Why are we deeply in breach of the Nuremberg Code and not discussing that fact? That one, I can't answer. That's a a strange fact. And I find it very similar to, oh, the most powerful nation on earth with the most ferocious nuclear arsenal that exists is now being governed by a structure in which the chief executive the person with the right to launch those weapons is obviously suffering from a progressive degradation of mental capacity how is that not the central question i don't know but it's very much like it's like the Nuremberg issue. Something is happening right in front of our eyes and we are having absolutely the wrong reaction to it, right? Again, I, hey, look at me. I'm I am advocating for Kamala Harris to be president and you can <laughs> go delightful. back through my history and you will find that I have never for one second been delighted by her. This is not somebody I want to see in that role, but mental faculties do seem to be the first and most important prerequisite for the job.
0: They're certainly pretty handy.
1: Yeah, I've, I've had them come in handy more than once. So I'll, I'll, agree with you there.
0: Well, every time, uh, you've come on this podcast and not only that, but on Twitter and on your own podcast, you've always been very good at making predictions. Um, you know, it's, it's been something that you haven't shied away from. I've asked you for predictions in the past. Um, most notably, uh, four years ago, um, when we started, I asked you for a prediction on, you know, uh joe uh, joe biden's presidency i you know you you sort of alluded to something happening that you know that which became the, the, the capitol hill riots you sort of warned congress about that that's you know that's what you were saying at the time if i were to ask you now for your prediction going into 2024 of not what you want to see happen but what you think will happen not just in terms of the result but what things do you expect to see along the way Yeah. Um, I will say
1: I am ever more skeptical of my ability or anyone else's ability to predict Mm. based on the intrusion of AI into essential functions. And we can come back to that in a second, but I, um, I have generated two rules for how to approach the AI era and I should just be clear I do not know if we currently live in the AGI era or if we are soon to enter the AGI era but I think it's one of those two right it may be that we're not there yet but it's coming um but anyway the powers that have come out of uh the LLM revolution are such that it makes I believe we have crossed over the mother of all event horizons and the definition of an event horizon is that you can't predict what's on the other side of it. Um, you know, at a physical level, that's true for something like a black hole. There's a point at which, um, because of its capacity to draw things in, there's no ability to detect and therefore predict what's going on inside. Um, so I'm hesitant about my own predictions. My first rule is you should become agnostic about anything you thought you knew about any domain that ai plausibly affects um, until you formally go through the process of convincing yourself that it remains true in other words there were lots of things that were true um that may or may not be true now and the only thing that will convince me of these i don't i just i've taken them all off of autopilot i've now gone back into a formal process where i have to check everything that's rule one rule two is deal with artificial intelligence like uh another species about which you know nothing do not assume that just because it speaks english and says things that sound familiar to you that you know why it would say that you don't um but Anyway, in terms of predictions in this very unpredictable era, I think certain processes that we have already seen unfolding are going to continue, and that, you know, two of them are on a collision course. I... As for what happens when they collide, I can say I believe that uh, 2024 is going to be in some ways like nothing we've ever seen right the amount that is at stake is so great and the degree to which the rent seeking elites or whatever it is that is capturing our system and running it uh are burning properties that were important to them that implies that they are playing End-game dynamics rather than continuing to play the same game or believing that they will be continuing to play the same game. That worries me Are they going for broke and trying to institute things and becoming more visible because they uh, uh, Because they Understand that being revealed is not the worst thing at this moment. The real question is are they able to make the structural changes that they That they desire um, so let's say I, I am very concerned that the Democratic Party cannot afford to lose this election and it doesn't have a viable candidate. Okay. That's a frightening combination of facts. It can't afford to lose because it can't afford to face the hearings that would happen if the Republicans were in charge of both houses of Congress um especially under a Republican president right the hearings that would happen over COVID would be devastating to the Democrats um so what will they do in order not to lose that's the question and my feeling is just about anything Hmm. um the the important the important thing that i can't predict the outcome of that is definitely coming is a head-on collision between the dissident movement which is growing which is um coalescing around a number of issues you know there was a covid dissident movement but the covid dissident movement and the dissident movement that uh is alarmed by things like um central bank digital currencies right the anti-authoritarian dissident movement those things are joining forces because they're realizing they are up against the same antagonist that antagonist which I call Goliath. Goliath is the force that, that prevents meaningful change. Um, and the question is, first of all, the, the COVID pandemic woke a huge number of people up, right? People went along with stuff and then they ended up feeling, frightened and foolish for having done so and that has them in a new state where they are ready to contemplate things they wouldn't have been ready to contemplate five years ago in that context with lots of people i don't think any of us are fully awake but with lots of people much more awake than they have been in living memory having transparent manipulation of history of information uh of human health having these things happen in the open means that I believe people are going to continue to wake in greater numbers and that that means that they are a potentially tremendously powerful political force to the extent that elections still carry the power to shift who governs and in what direction and that that's really that's what's going to dominate 2024 is a battle to keep the corrupt structure coming along and then there are many of us who understand that at the very least we are united in uh being angry at having our rights to self-governance breached all right so that collision between those two forces is going to dominate uh the upcoming year how it plays out i don't think anybody can say um but i would expect i would expect pandemonium at some level but again this is now going to take place in an era in which whether we have agi or not We do have very powerful artificially intelligent tools that are going to be tremendously useful in misleading people, right? They may be useful in untangling, uh, propaganda. In fact, they are useful for detecting and untangling propaganda. But the real question is, are they more powerful in the hands of the propagandists or in the hands of those who wish to see through what they're doing? And I'm concerned that they are more powerful in the hands of the propagandists than they are in in the hands of those who would unspin the propaganda.
0: Every time I've talked about AI and AGI on this podcast, I've always been at risk of um, comments calling me a doomer. Um, I had uh, James Barrett on the podcast. He wrote a book on AI called Our Final Final Creation. Um, With this sort of... Uh, culture online of anytime the conversation of uh, existential risk and ai comes up that people throw the word doomer out there and sort of make light and joke of people having these conversations does this put us at risk of sleepwalking into a world that we know nothing about if people are going to just avoid having these conversations out of sake of looking silly
1: yes Um, I have taken my friend Alexandros Marinos to task over the use of the term Doomer. I don't think that he and I are terribly far apart analytically in terms of how dangerous we think the present is. I think he's a bit more more hopeful that the ability of AI to solve problems that were formerly unsolvable uh, is being underrated. But we both believe there's a tremendous... Uh, an unacceptably large risk of catastrophe coming out of the AI era. Um, But I think the term doomer is very unhelpful because here's what I've said. There are five ways that I can see AI producing an absolutely terrifying catastrophe. Three of them are guaranteed, okay? Now, am I a doomer? I didn't say anything about extinction. I think extinction is possible, but I don't think it's highly likely. I'm not convinced uh, of the the two mechanisms of AI disaster
0: that I don't think
1: are guaranteed are malevolent AI decides to get rid of us or misaligned AI um gets rid of us accidentally. Right? I don't think those two are guaranteed. I'm concerned that they are more more plausible than i would like but those two are we could take them off the table and we're still left with three other disasters and um you know one disaster is bad enough we have a fragile system that is not built in anticipation of these kinds of disruptions um to have three of them happen simultaneously is going to strain the system to its absolute breaking point But if I don't believe that misaligned AI is necessarily the thing to be worried about, am I a doomer or am I not? Right? So anyway, my point is there is, if you're not concerned about what comes out of this revolution, then you haven't understood what it is, right? Everybody ought to be very concerned is extinction on the table. Yeah, I think it is, because for one thing, we've got a system in which things can spiral out of control very easily, right? It doesn't take very much disruption to put nuclear nations uh, at loggerheads, and nuclear nations at loggerheads is obviously potentially a recipe for extinction. So, you know, is extinction on the table? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's on the table before AI, but AI could easily create a pathway there where there wasn't one before. But... Um, I don't know how we discuss the, the landscape of opportunities and hazards in appropriately serious terms without running the risk of being dismissed as doomers. And my feeling is the the problem is the term doomer is nebulous, right? The term doomer is open to interpretation and I think by some people's metric I would definitely be one I think there are three catastrophes coming from AI that sounds like gloom and doom right um am I worried about misaligned AI less than some right am I you know uh you know a, a happy go lucky what me worry kind of person who is ignoring the obvious hazard of a misaligned AI coming after me maybe but anyway, the point is, look, you ought to be worried. Everybody ought to be worried. Is it possible that we get through this and we are better off in the end? Barely, I would say, but yeah, it's possible. Um, Is it possible that this turns into a very mundane disaster, right? So I haven't laid out my taxonomy. I've given you the two types of AI disaster that are not guaranteed. Hopefully, I can remember the other three uh, off the top of my head. Um, One of them is the malevolent use of ai by bad people 100 guaranteed yeah um next one is human insanity that will come from us all interacting in a mostly invisible way with an entity that has access to our api right has access to our language and our emotional content therefore has capabilities we don't understand we don't really understand its motivational structure and so the point is if everybody you know if everybody is i've forgotten the name of the character who consults cyrano de bergerac for romantic help remember
0: (laughs) no idea anyway whatever
1: (laughs) that guy right the handsome dude who gets cyrano to write his love poems for him. Hmm. Um, If all of us are in the role of that guy consulting something that makes us seem smarter and more capable than we are, we're going to go insane, literally insane, trying to figure out what's true, who knows anything, right? Literal insanity is going to emerge from that. And we've been through a trial run on literal insanity, right? COVID was us going, you know, three quarters of the way down that road. Um, So now, you know, we're going to, we're going to keep going down that road to the end of it and keep going even further still. So that seems to me uh, very dangerous given uh, what people are in charge of. And then the third most mundane of the guaranteed catastrophes to come out of this is a massive economic disruption that we're just not ready for. Mm. Right. You've got all these people who trained for something have some job, some way of extracting resources from the economy and putting a roof over their families' heads, and we're just going to arbitrarily eliminate a bunch of their jobs, right? With no backup plan, even if we did, even if we came up with some emergency UBI program and figured out how to fund it without tremendous pain, whatever it is that we did, we just don't even have the mechanism to deal with the social implications of that number of people who has no meaningful purpose anymore, because the stupid purpose that people have been running around following, how do I get the economy to spit enough money at me to do what I want to do? Right. That's not much of a purpose, but it's at least, you know, it tells you something about what you're supposed to do when you get up in the morning. Right. A world of people who've been sidelined by AI who are then, you know, talking to each other in part using AI to make themselves seem smart. This doesn't go anywhere. Good. Mm. This is, this is bad. So anyway, you can decide for yourself whether I'm a doomer because I see three guaranteed catastrophes or I'm a, uh, a, uh, fairy tale teller because I don't think, um, misaligned AI is necessarily coming for us. Mm. Um, but there it is.
0: Well, number two is something i'm you know i i believe very very strongly i mean i see people uh, in the personal development space like gary v talking about how great ai is because now you can you know if 10 friends come over you can tell it what allergies people have and it'll order the food and make the recipes and number one i think well if you're just outsourcing just any sort of critical thinking to, to something else humans are just gonna you know are going to become over time, just completely stupid, completely lazy, completely reliable on something else, which isn't good anyway. And number two, I know this isn't just speculation, I know a lot of people, friends of mine, who are getting AI to write their undergrad work, their masters, and a few people I know are doing PhDs, and AI is doing a lot of their PhD work. Now, do we want people to get to, you know, you know, significant um, positions off of the back of, you know, AI's work. Is that a world we wanna live in? Probably not. And I also see the struggle of professors asking the question, how do we combat this? Oh, great, there's um, a new AI system that can detect AI work. Well, then there's another AI system where you can copy and paste it and it'll completely rewrite and bypass that. It seems like an internal struggle. So as a former professor, where do you see this battle between ai and academia going well i have to tell you i have a i
1: know this is going to get me in trouble (laughs) but this is like maybe the one bright spot in this bleak landscape Mm. are you telling me that suddenly people are gonna become concerned because they're going to realize that under undergraduate education doesn't mean anything. Oh, well, good, fine. <laughs> you know, you, you're decades late. Okay. Undergraduate education doesn't mean anything. PhDs, we're going to stop listening to them because maybe they got their degrees by leveraging AI and they don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah. I got news for you. The PhDs, they don't know what they're fucking talking about. Okay. They don't that you, if you didn't learn that from COVID, then you're not paying enough attention so Mm -hmm. anyway i guess my point is i do think it's actually positive that this is going to get us to look at a bunch of things that we took seriously even though we shouldn't have Mm -hmm. and we're going to look at them skeptically right that's good that really has to happen Um, but that doesn't you know so my role in the universe has in part for the last 20 years been saying look you have a captured system It's broken it can't do the thing that it's supposed to do and you don't get it because the bridges don't fall down right away right you've got a system that is crippled it's an essential system and it's crippled but you're still running on its legacy power and then people don't get it because the bridges aren't falling down and then something terrible like COVID happens and you get the entire academy singing from the same hymnal And it turns out that they led you into danger, and you know, no surprise, they're not taking responsibility for that. Um, so and then people are like, Well, then what do we do? I don't know, can we go back 20 years and have that conversation again and talk about what to do about it as it was unfolding? Because that would have been the time to do something about it. Now we have an emergency, right? Now you've got AI is going to throw everything into chaos, and you don't have enough people who remember how to think to reboot the system. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've just compounded the catastrophe. So, anyway, I don't know. On the one hand, there are aspects of this that weren't terribly predictable. And then there were other aspects that were completely predictable. And I hope somebody's paying attention because if we get out of this, it would be really good if we didn't let it happen again right you've got it you've got to tend the system as it stops pursuing the objective for which you built it as it starts to do something new that's the moment to be alarmed not the moment at which the thing starts collapsing in on you
0: well we've danced around a, a lot of hot topics today um as i mentioned to you at the top of the show we, we we've done this once a year so far and there's or is that space in between uh, recording with you that I get sort of flooded with all these questions I'd love to ask you about. So apologizing for jamming as many in as I can. Um, but the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, we mentioned um, a little bit earlier about the, the the IDW, the intellectual dark web. When On one of your p- previous appearances on this podcast, um, we discussed the moment Sam Harris uh, turned in his IDW card. And you said on, on this podcast, um, though he didn't mention me by name, I think that's what he was aiming at. He was angry at me and probably had some right to be. You said that you hoped you'd be able to have a sort of constructive conversation um, around the topic and, you know, move forward together. Did that ever happen?
1: No, it didn't happen. And I must say, um, whatever responsibility I felt, for the falling out with sam i no longer feel uh that responsibility that i did feel came from the fact that heather and i were asked a question in our live q a about sam and i don't think we were as careful as we should have been um i don't think we said anything terribly wrong but you know we used the term trump derangement syndrome Anyway, if I could go back, I would undo it. Mm. Um, but I apologized for it, which yes. I think was sufficient. What unfolded around COVID, though, was of a very different nature, and it wasn't just COVID. It was COVID and the uh, the last presidential election, in which Sam took the position that there was only one thing to do and anybody who talked about anything else was in some way guilty of putting us all in jeopardy um, because of the magnitude of the threat that he felt trump represented i didn't see it that way We're both americans were entitled to differ over this and i can't see you know let's put it this way i have a standard that i i know could be abused in somebody else's hands but i know that i use it carefully and the standard is could reasonable people disagree over this Hmm. right and my sense is could reasonable people disagree over whether or not Trump is such a tremendous threat uh, that we have the right to contemplate something other than voting for whatever the blue team has delivered yeah reasonable people could differ over that and Hmm. Sam did not believe reasonable people could differ over that he believed you were inherently unreasonable if you differed over it Hmm that happened again with covid now the thing that troubles me very deeply here is that sam has been very aggressive in very specifically attacking my credibility and heather's credibility as scientists right he's saying look you he admits that he is not qualified to evaluate what took place during covid but he says neither are brett and heather now that is not true are we qualified as virologists to discuss virology? No, but evolutionary biology is a central player in all of the disciplines that were relevant to the pandemic. We were squarely within our training to discuss it. And even if we hadn't been, the, the fact is the way uh, this works is you train yourself, right? In my opinion, Getting a PhD might be something you have to do, but getting two is unnecessary because even if you want to switch topics, once you've figured out what the level of work necessary is, you can train yourself in a new topic. So in any case, the question was, were we in a position to meaningfully sort signal from noise in the pandemic? And Sam thought no, but Sam was wrong about virtually everything. And so my point is what kind of intellectual discovers that whatever model they are running has led them astray across the board and then does not go back. And especially when you're talking about a friend does not go back and correct the record with respect to attacks on someone else's credibility who was not wrong across the board right in fact was disproportionately right and to the extent that you say well geez who's to say that you were disproportionately right the fact is sam i believe has publicly said that he's not getting any more COVID boosters right sam has switched teams and he has not owned up to it Right? He swore that these things were so safe and so effective and that that was so clear from the evidence that had been presented to us that people were effectively betraying the collective not to get the shots and that Heather and I were irresponsible for discussing concerns about hazards down the road that we did not yet know about. But we turned out to be right. Those hazards exist. There's a uh the data is polluted by corruption but there is a very strong signal in the data that suggests that more people were harmed than helped by these shots even if you don't believe that is true there were certainly a huge number of people harmed needlessly because we didn't age stratify the recommendation for the shots so the the degree of wrongness of Sam's position is extreme and his failure to own up to it uh, is clear evidence of a deep characterological flaw mm. so um and the fact that he won't talk to me about it is evidence that he knows that
0: do you see a sort of any route to reconciliation here or on your side are you willing to have that talk are you willing to have that conversation
1: of course and you know i, I have a rule um I'm not gonna out the person at the moment, but uh, some years ago I had my first conversation with somebody quite famous uh, on a topic that was unrelated to what had happened at Evergreen. But the first thing this person said to me um, was, hey, I feel like I owe you an apology. When Evergreen first happened, Um, I thought you were the bad guy. I thought you were telling stories about what was taking place. That wasn't true. I I misunderstood it. And it took me years to realize I had it wrong and I'm sorry. What I said to this person was actually by my scheme, you don't owe me an apology, right? All I can ask is that you try to figure out what's true. And if at the point you discover that you had it wrong, you put it right right if you fix it then you and I are square right what I don't tolerate is people who don't fix it who get it wrong and then rationalize or throw up dust or whatever they do and so anyway yeah does Sam have the capacity to put this right 100 all he's got to do is own up to what happened and how it happened right we're good from, from there um but until he does that this is this is going to be this is going to hang over us it's the central fact of our relationship until he puts it right and I hope he does I'm a Sam I like Sam I think he was an important force for good and and uh I'm not happy to see him tangling himself in knots rationalizing uh a departure from reason that um many people were very troubled by so anyway sam if you're out there call me let's talk
0: well i certainly hope that uh certainly hope that that happens the final question i'd love to ask you about is um i've had this conversation with a few of my friends and it's on this idea we have a lot of really top intellectuals out there that in this space in this podcast space in this idw space that they get asked or a lot of interest seems to be around them answering questions that the listener already knows the answer to or you know wants to hear them repeat that answer back to them questions like what is a woman for example you know i don't think anyone tuning into jordan peterson answered the question what is a woman has a different opinion anyway, they're just having their opinion yeah. be affirmed back to them. So my question is, do you think that in a way, we waste a lot of time and, and resources on these intellectuals by having them answer these questions rather than focusing on more important issues? Yeah, uh,
1: clearly, there is a um, I mean, I think this is analogous to what happens to uh, a great band, Mm. right? A great band does a concert and everybody wants to hear the greatest hits. And that's not really what you should want, right? Mm. It's cool to hear the greatest hits. It would be cool if the greatest hits were allowed to um, change, right? In other words, the natural relationship of a human being to music is not one of songs that are static. Even songs that your tribe played at every campfire would change at every campfire right? It's only at the invention of the player piano and then recorded music that you get to hear the same song exactly the same way twice. But the point is a band is now trapped. They go to the concert and the audience wants to hear the album version, which frankly may never have been played, right? It's a compilation of different elements from different takes. And so the band becomes trapped by whatever was presented uh, to the public, and intellectuals are this way too, right? They're, there's something, some particular riff that people like hearing. And, and they know that if they ask the question, this person is going to deliver a version of that riff, and man, it feels good. Um, the problem, though, I think, is that we are trapped by our developmental experience as consumers, right? That's not our fundamental nature as human beings, mm-hmm. right? You could make an argument for consuming natural resources but we're not fundamentally consumers in the way that we mean that in economic terms but we have become that and so if i pay i don't know what concert tickets cost these days but if i pay i don't know a hundred bucks to go see radiohead Mm -hmm. right do i want to hear something that's going to give me the dopamine rush of the absolutely transcendent songs that are going to have the entire audience singing along or do i want to hear radiohead playing with new ideas where i might get a glimmer of the thing that's going to become the next transcendent song that the audience all knows well there's an awful lot of waiting around and you know mucking about on the way to the transcendent thing that then is going to end up being important. And so from the point of view of a consumer, maybe it doesn't feel like a good deal. You want to pay a hundred bucks for what amounts to a minute and a half of important new music, or do you want two hours of stuff that makes you feel good, right? So it's the wrong choice, but in part because we have this ROI calculation running through our minds that doesn't belong there that's not what you want. Right. And in some ways, um, my podcast, your podcast, podcasts are really evidence that the other thing still exists, right? Why, why do people like Joe Rogan? Well, I can tell you as a many time guest on Joe Rogan's program, you can't decide what you and Joe are going to talk about.
0: Hmm.
1: can't be done, right? Joe goes where he's going. And if you're capable of volleying, then it's cool. And if you're not, then maybe you don't get to come back. But, um, but the point is that is born of an impulse where it's like, instead of I paid a hundred bucks, I want to hear the hits, right? It's, um, I actually want to hear what happens emergently when these two people that I respect have a conversation where even they don't know where it's going to go. Right, so that that I think that is the good impulse struggling to emerge, and the fact that podcast world has become an important political force is evidence. Um, it's evidence of something good, uh, much like the success. You know, you're not old enough to remember the mind-numbing world of uh, well, it was different in Britain and the U.S., but in the U.S. we had, you know, three major broadcast networks. You know, you could tune into them or you could tune into reruns on one of seven other channels. Um, but the stuff on the major networks was like three camera sitcoms, right? A three camera sitcom is a totally formulaic presentation of something that you don't even know if it's actually funny because they put laugh track on it. And so you laugh along with an audience that doesn't exist, right? That was bad right but the thing that they told themselves when they made this stuff was that the audience couldn't handle anything more nuanced wrong you know hbo proves that's not true right the idea that we have these these sprawling narratives that function like um you know novels or series of novels where it's like you know one chapter after another right and that people are following these incredibly elaborate stories the audience was capable of doing it it was the studios that weren't capable of detecting that or producing the things um so anyway i think i think we're there too right yes there is an impulse can you tell me the thing that i know you're gonna say that i love it when you do right or you know challenge me say something that i've never heard that i'm initially gonna disagree with and then i'm gonna spend time thinking about it and figure out whether or not uh you might be right right that's much more more powerful and last thing i will say same topic I believe we have a very broken relationship, at least in the US, but probably uh, across the West, where we ask candidates for office about policies that they're going to enact, right? And it's like a reflex where we want them to tell us, I'm going to do this thing that you want. And so they promise us stuff, it doesn't work. They don't have the power to enact it when they get in office or they never meant it in the first place. And we would be much better off, counterintuitive as this sounds, if we assessed their character and their patriotism instead of their policy proposals, right? My feeling is I actually don't care what you think of policy. If you impress me that you're a patriot, that you love the country that I'm a part of, that you want to see it improved and that your values align with mine so that improved to you also means improved to me, then all I want to know is that you're good at evaluating what policy might get us there. If you've got a policy that I think I don't want, but it actually makes the country match the values that I hold better than it does currently I'm on board. So anyway, that's my plea for us to stop trying to pressure people to promise us policy changes when they get in office and have them tell us who they really are and what they really want. And that that's what we should be voting.
0: That is really, really, really well put my friend. So for everyone listening, for everyone watching, um, I know that you didn't come on to promote this book, But I just want to give a shout-out to Hunter Gallagher's Guide to the 21st Century. Very, very, very good book. And I encourage anyone out there to listen to the conversation I had with Heather um, around its content. Please let these guys know where they can find the book, where they can find the Dark Horse podcast, because I know it's not always on YouTube anymore. Where can they find it?
1: Uh, They should find it on Rumble. We are now on Rumble. I'm very excited about that. They can also find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, if they want an audio version. Um, Anyway, they can find it anywhere podcasts are, but Rumble would be the preferred place, and I would ask you please sign up for Rumble. I know it's a little annoying, but it's free. Sign up for Rumble and subscribe to the Dark Horse channel. That actually does help us out. You can find me on Twitter, at Brett Weinstein. Uh, You can find Heather at natural selections on Substack. um so anyway all of that
0: i will make sure all that is linked in the description below brett thank you so much um it means the world to me uh for you to join me for the fourth time i've been a big big admirer of yours for many years and i never take it for granted when you come back to join me so thank you so much sincerely
1: always a pleasure lewis i'll see you in a year